This is the Education Exchange. I am Paul Peterson, Senior Editor at Education Next. Thank you for joining us. Philadelphia schools changed the rules for getting into its exam schools. Parents of talented children are fighting back. In 2021, Philadelphia said that a lottery system for admission to an exam school was necessary to end segregation at those schools. Too few Black and Latino students were being admitted. Overnight, the percentage of minority students attending these selective schools jumped from 30% to 60%. But now there's a lawsuit, and the attorney for the family filing that lawsuit says the only compassionate way to bridge the achievement gap is to focus on raising the floor to help the students who are falling behind and not lowering the ceiling for the few who are thriving. This kind of battle is taking place in Virginia, Boston, New York City, and other places around the country. So why has the discussion about exam schools escalated into lawsuits and, and campaigns? Why are young people being admitted on the basis of a lottery rather than an exam to a place that's supposed to be a place for people who are talented and gifted? Well, to discuss these questions, I have with me on the Education Exchange, Owen Thompson, a professor at Williams College and the author of a just released article in Education Next, which is entitled, Gifted and Talented Programs Don't Cause School Segregation. Thank you, Owen, for joining me on the Education Exchange. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, Owen, you're studying um, gifted and talented programs at the elementary school level. So what percentage of elementary school students are participating in these programs? Uh, given the amount of media attention they receive, surprisingly few. And that'll be an important part of evaluating their effects on segregation when we get to that. But I think nationally, fewer than 5% of students are enrolled in, in gifted and talented programs of any kind. Uh, so they're relatively rare, but um, are relatively high profile as well. Well, it's a small percentage, but these are little kids. So um, are these mainly for students in fifth grade and older, or are there gifted and talented programs for, for you know, two kids in second grade as well? Yeah, I mean, the, the programs, you know, the data I'm working with shows a, you know, a reasonably high prevalence of these programs across the grade distribution. So, so you see them, you know, as early as kindergarten and throughout the elementary school level. And I should say parenthetically, while a relatively small number of students are enrolled in the programs, virtually all districts, not virtually all, but a large share of districts and a large share of schools uh, do offer gifted and talented programs. So they're a ubiquitous part of the educational landscape, even if they're serving relatively few students. So there aren't so many students, but then how do they set up these programs? If you're going to have a program like this at your local neighborhood school, uh, how how is it designed? Are do they are they in a separate classroom or or, or what exactly? How is it done? Yeah, it's done in a very heterogeneous way. There's no sort of uniform even definition of a gifted and talented program. Different schools operate them in different ways. But yes, I think you know some survey data I've seen of administrators says that you know sixty or seventy percent of gifted and talented programs operate as pullouts where uh, you know students are taken out of their normal classroom for some share of the day and are educated at a you know in a different in a different way sometimes the programming consists of doing the same content that's being done in the mainstream classroom but at an accelerated rate and other times there's content enrichment where uh you know the actual things being covered are more are more advanced not just being covered at a faster pace 
So over half of them, 60% of them, I think I heard you say, are these pullout programs. I've never been a big fan of pullouts. I've, I've felt like once you have a classroom, you've got a teacher, when you have kids coming and going in and out of the classroom, it's it disturbs everybody. So what's what's your take on that? Is there any evidence that a pullout program actually is beneficial? I haven't seen and in the I mean the other model is to have a dedicated classroom, of course, where every student in the classroom is gifted in some in some sense or by some definition. I don't think I've seen any empirical research uh, on whether pullouts versus dedicated classrooms are more effective. I think what you run up against is if you're wondering about the efficacy of these programs, which again, my papers mainly start, you know, focused on their segregationary impacts. But as far as their efficacy goes, you have to worry about, you know, you're concerned about the students who are deemed gifted and whether they're getting an appropriate curriculum. But then there's also, of course, peer effects for the students who are not gifted and are no longer going to be kind of shoulder to shoulder with the students of higher abilities. And so I think one argument for a pullout would be that you can have these more advanced students kind of in the classroom generating peer effects you know generating social ties and not being sort of isolated away from the rest of the student body um while also getting you know more advanced math or, or faster paced reading curriculum or something like that um i think your points are well taken about the sort of social cohesion of the classroom and, and so forth um yeah i'm worried about the kids that get taken out because when you get taken out of a classroom, you're sort of a weirdo. So you could have, you know, negative social effects on, on the gifted and talented kids as being something other than just a regular, a regular member of the class. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, you know, it happens at the other end of the ability distribution as well. Because I mean, pullouts are very common for children that need some remedial math or, or reading help. Um, and so I think, you know, I'm studying kind of kids at the higher end of the ability distribution here. but um. But you have similar sort of you know operational operational things for 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 remedial for remedial things as well right so well, let's talk about the segregation effects because that's what your study is uh, focused on and uh when you do this i i think you divide students into two categories either they're white or asian on the one hand or uh black or latino or or uh, uh native american on the other hand so um so do you have is did i get that right is that yeah the kind of primary results are are just kind of dividing students into underrepresented minorities versus you know white and asian students although in the appendix of the paper i show everything disaggregated by each specific racial and ethnic group and it doesn't change the main conclusions so so uh, what do you find john i mean it seems to me obvious this increases segregation because we know that generally speaking, white and Asian students perform higher on on tests and so forth and are more likely to be identified as uh, gifted and talented. So doesn't this inevitably uh, increase segregation? Yeah, I don't I don't think that's uh, an inaccurate way of thinking about it. And that's the way I kind of came to it. You know, that's how I came to the topic. What you observe is very consistently, if you look within gifted and talented programs, white and Asian students are pretty heavily overrepresented and African-American and Hispanic and American Indian students are quite underrepresented. So that on its face would seem to suggest like, hey, there's gonna be big segregationary effects of these programs. And that's why you get so much criticism of it because on its face is what the politicians all talk about, the school board members, that's what the whole public debate about is about, right? Is that, you know, these, people who are participating in these programs are 
uh, more from one ethnic group than another. So therefore, we've got segregation here, right? Yeah, and it can be very kind of just like visually striking if you walk into a school and it's a very diverse school or maybe a majority minority school. And then you see a class of, you know, predominantly white and Asian students walking by and you say, oh, that's the that's the gifted class. Right. And so you definitely kind of observe this in a striking way anecdotally. Um, and, and it's true. I think, you know, the national data that I'm working with bears out that perception that the white and Asian students are overrepresented in these programs. But then I do like a just a very simple sort of exercise where I say, OK. I have enrollment data by gifted and talented status and disaggregated by race and ethnicity. So by the way, let me interrupt you. Where did you get your data? People will be suspicious of your data. So you got to tell me where where you got your uh, information from. Yeah, sure. Um, So this is federal. There's federal data from the, um, what is it? The Sorry, I wrote the Department of Education statistical base or something like that. Yes, but it's not the common, it's not like the Common Core or something. It's the Civil Rights Data Collection Service, which uh, is conducted by the Department of Education's Office of Civil Rights. So there's a biannual survey and it, it, it surveys every uh, every elementary school in the country to a first approximation. And it collects, you know, information about discipline and about, you know, the overall racial composition of schools. But one thing it collects that I'm using here that I don't think has been kind of utilized before at a national scale is they ask whether there's gifted and talented programming. And if there is gifted and talented program, they ask about the race specific enrollments in those gifted and talented programs. Um, and so it's you know very kind of readily available to just look at the racial dynamics of these programs at a national level. Um, so, so what do you find? Yeah, so the kind of thought experiment or the empirical exercise I conduct is to say, okay, I have these enrollments by race for gifted and talented programs and non-gifted and talented programs. And I think a critic would say, hey, those gifted and talented programs are operating effectively as separate schools. You know, it's a school within a school. Uh, And so I say, okay, let's calculate standard measures of racial segregation, specifically the dissimilarity index and the exposure index, which are widely used, but I'd be happy to describe in more detail. It would be useful to your listeners. But, um. But say let's recalculate those under the you know treating gifted and talented programs as fully separate schools. Yeah. Uh, so it's in the same school building and it's got the same school identifier. But let's let's pretend that's that's a fully different school, which is in some sense you know it it could be seen that way. And then just say, well, how big are the changes in these standard measures of racial segregation if you recalculate, uh, you know, if you recalculate segregation measures uh, treating gifted and talented programs as separate schools? And somewhat surprisingly to me, uh, they don't change very much. Yeah, so one standard measure, the exposure index, changes virtually not at all. This is measuring the extent to which minority students have white and Asian classmates. And uh, the other measure, the dissimilarity index, which measures the extent to which students are spread equally across units, uh, across schools. Well, I sort of like the second measure, uh, the better one, because I think that's a real measure of uh, of segregation, whether or not, you know, uh, it's uncontaminated by the size of the group within the population. So thinking of, yeah. of using that dissimilarity index, what, what, what do you what do you get with it? I find that if you treat, you know, gifted and talented programs as separate schools and calculating the dissimilarity index, it goes up by 10 to 20 percent, depending on the exact sample and weights and things like this. Um, but so, you know, I think about 10 to 20 percent. I think one of you know, the, the interpretation of that, like a transparent interpretation of that 10 to 20 percent is that if you discontinued all gifted and talented programs nationwide, 
and the students who were currently in those gifted and talented programs just returned to the main, you know, the main classrooms of the schools in which they are already attending, that as measured by the dissimilarity index, racial segregation would fall by 10 to 20 percent. Um, a 10, 10 to 20 percent is 10, 10 to 20 percent of 6 percent, right? Or seven, uh, didn't you say that there's only 6% of the kids in this? So it's, it's, it's that's that's about a, a one percentage point change or something like that, isn't it? Uh, no, it's it's not it's not saying that. The the fact that a very small share of students are enrolled in these programs is incorporated into the 10 to 20% change. Right? I see. Um, so yeah, it's saying nationally. Now, in some sense, that's not a very big change, right? I mean, I, I think it's, well, I, I should say, it's quite subjective whether you want to say that's a big change or not, right? It's certainly not a transformational change. Schools aren't going to, you know, racial segregation would not look fundamentally different if uh, gifted and talented programs were disbanded tomorrow, I don't think. On the other hand, it's not negligible either. And I think, you know, reasonable people can certainly say like, hey, this is something that administrators and policymakers can do. Uh, it's relatively, I don't want to say it's easy to do because as you we're reading about in your opening uh you know you get a lot of pushback if you attempt to change the rules to about about these programs but it's a uh it's an actionable district level policy that would have non-negligible non i think it's fair to say effects on racial segregation um on the other hand it is not a silver bullet or a panacea i mean most of the racial segregation we observe in in elementary schools in the united states cannot be meaningfully attributed to gifted and talented programming well, it's mostly a matter of their neighborhood schools and uh, people of different ethnic backgrounds live in different neighborhoods. So is that the driving force of segregation by and large? Yeah, I think sorting across neighborhoods within school districts, and then there's even more sorting across school districts within metropolitan areas. And, you know, this is, uh, yeah, th those are, those are I think, the big structural determinants of, of school segregation. Well, has anybody ever ruled on the constitutionality of these gifted and talented programs? Uh, are they constitutional? Does it is it constitutional to change them? What's the legal framework? Yeah. Um, so I think you know, in the wake of like Brown v. Board and the Civil Rights Act and like the kind of big federal you know busing and the other policies, there were a lot of school districts that created gifted and talented programs or other forms of ability tracking in a way that was like very transparently designed to kind of not actually implement uh, the requirements of Brown and of the Civil Rights Act. Many of those programs were, were struck down uh, in the 70s and 80s if there was just kind of very, you know, very transparently being used to circumvent the law. Um, but the constitutionality of ability tracking in general, when it's not just like very, uh, you know, very, very openly being used to flout to flout other laws um, has never been struck down by any courts as well. In fact, there are magnet schools out there that were created back in the 70s and 80s and are still around. I know of one in New York City that's uh, prospering to this day. They basically say, we want kids to come from all over the city to come to this school. You're going to have to show that you have a special talent in order to get into the school. But this is the way we're going to create an integrated environment. We're going to attract people from all backgrounds to come into this school. And they, they've they actually been able to do that. And, and that's that's quite frequently done by magnet schools and in lots of parts of the country. So that's actually been part, one of the uh, integration strategies historically. I mean, you mentioned one side of it, but I think there's the other side of it as well. 
Yeah, and I think magnet schools are an interesting analogy. I mean, if, if you look at the racial composition of magnet schools in large urban districts, they are a little more segregated than the district overall. They, they tend to skew wider, but they are retaining large They could be numbers. wider, but they could be more integrated because districts could be predominantly minority and therefore, uh, you know, predominantly, it depends on how you define uh, uh, the word uh, segregated because you could probably have a 50-50 split in, in these magnet schools that uh, would be almost the perfect idea, some people's idea of an integrated environment. Yeah, yeah. No, I think that's a really good point. Um, when we're talking about segregation, it's really important to distinguish between segregation at the school level versus the district level versus maybe the metropolitan area, area level or even the national level. And yes, you walk into magnet schools and they're often very diverse and would score very high on measures like the dissimilarity index. Um, well, that wouldn't actually be calculable at a single school, but but yeah, they, they're they're very diverse um, by any by any reasonable definition. Um, I think the point, which actually is sort of analogous to these gifted and talented programs, in in some ways, right, is that the program itself, the magnet school or the gifted and talented program, or you see something similar sometimes with charter schools, right, that those programs have a different racial composition than the district in which they are located, and they tend to skew more white and Asian, right. That's fairly extremely true for gifted and talented programs, but it's also true to a meaningful extent for, for magnet schools in many cases, or in some cases, charter schools. Um, what's interesting about it to me, and I don't think I got into this too much in, in the piece, but in, in a longer version of the paper I, I do, um, is that there really might be trade-offs between operating gifted and talented programs or charters or, or magnets and having relatively high levels of segregation in the program itself, in the gifted and talented program or in the magnet school, right? But that that actually reduces segregation potentially, right? At the district or metropolitan area level, because you're retaining larger numbers of, of white and Asian students, for example, in the district. Um, so there, there really might be some trade-offs between kind of the, the segregation of the programs themselves and the segregation of some broader, some in some broader context. But now uh, I think your, your study, if I re if I recall it accurately, suggests that the introduction of a program for gifted and talented doesn't really change the racial composition of a school uh, that much. Yeah, that's accurate. So that's kind of the second big part of the analysis. First is just looking at the racial composition of these programs and whether disbanding them would hypothetically uh, improve racial segregation. And the second one is saying, well, what are their effects on enrollment? Right, and on race-specific enrollment in particular. I'm able to do this at the school level because schools actually pretty frequently establish or disband these programs. It's not super common, but it's sufficiently common that I have a lot of cases where schools going along and they have a gifted and talented program and then they get rid of it. And so you can observe kind of before and after whether there are say big declines in white enrollment after a gifted and talented program at a particular school uh, is disbanded. And you don't you don't see it at least not in a way that's detectable. Um, I you know I can rule out pretty small pretty small effects on on enrollment on race specific enrollment. So people don't flock to this school just because they have this program, or they don't yeah. leave it just because the program's been um, um, dismantled. Yeah, that seems to be the case, which you know honestly was somewhat surprising to me. I think anecdotally. You have, you know, white and Asian students attending a predominantly African-American school, for example, and there's a widespread perception that if that gifted and talented program wasn't there, they would they would enroll elsewhere um, and potentially even leave the district. 
Um, and you just don't, I don't see that. I don't see that in the data I'm working with. Uh, but maybe that's because these pull-out programs aren't really that great. I mean, if most of these, these gifted and talented programs are, are at the elementary level, are, are just uh, pull-out programs, and, and you, there's some pluses to them maybe, but there's some minuses to them also, and maybe parents just sort of perceive that. Yeah, I think that's a very plausible explanation. And I think an important caveat to this whole thing is that I am working at the elementary school level and prior research and just sort of anecdotal evidence suggests that tracking might be a bigger deal at the second at the high school level, right? So if, you know, if high school got rid of all their AP classes or got rid of an IB program or something of this nature, I don't want to say based on my results that you wouldn't see significant enrollment effects. Um, but yeah, within the context of elementary schools operating primarily pullouts, there doesn't seem to be a large enrollment response. And, and the larger debate over exam schools is really, as I read the, liter the, the discussion out there, is it's really about the high school, because there's a, a feeling that we need to have those high schools that specialize in providing uh, opportunities for the students who really want to bear down, prepare themselves for college, and they need a particular curriculum to do so. And if they don't have a school devoted to that, they're going to lose out. Isn't that the big debate out there? Uh, I mean, as a guy that just wrote a paper about uh, elementary schools, I don't want to say that they're not important. But yeah, I do I do think that um, that probably there's a little more policy relevance and a little more bite at the high at the high school level. Now, um, do you think if you looked at that, you'd get the same results? Yeah, it's tough. I mean, I've thought about maybe writing a follow up on that or doing some work on it. It's a little less a little less clear um how to like you know if you have a if a student at a high school is taking mostly just normal classes but then also is in an ap class you know is in ap english or something do you classify that student as you know as being within in the in the you know in the fast track or, or you know in the gifted kind of program and then schools that you know like new york city obviously has several famous kind of tests you know test-based high schools but that's not very common in practice i think much more common is to have you know, an AP curriculum or an IB curriculum within a, within an otherwise, an otherwise no tests required kind of high school. Um, so it's not immediately obvious to me just from a research design perspective how to implement that. But yeah, it's certainly something I'm interested in and would like to work on. So what's your policy recommendation going forward? Would you keep these schools? Would you abandon them? Would you let them, uh, you know, would you expand them? Or uh, what's, what's the policy conclusion? Yeah. Uh, I don't think of what I'm doing as, you know, kind of lending itself to a, an obvious immediate policy conclusion. But I will say that, the, you know, I think the downside of these programs is they generate some racial segregation. And that is not a that's not negligible by any means. Right. I think that's an important consideration for policymakers. But that downside is not huge, according to my estimates. Right. The extent of racial segregation generated by these programs is pretty modest. On the other hand, I think there is some real evidence that these programs benefit students, and in particular that they benefit high-achieving minority students. Yeah. So this isn't my paper, but uh, you know David Card had a, had a paper a while ago uh, that you know found big positive impacts on on minority students that were in a essentially a gifted and talented program. Uh, Sarah Cajotes had another paper that I think found pretty clear impacts in in Boston that students, minority students put into these programs really benefited from them. So I think, you know, policymakers need to kind of weigh the costs and benefits. In my reading of the literature and my own study, the benefits seem at least potentially quite substantial. 
and the costs seem pretty modest. So I think retaining these programs really would make sense for a lot of for a lot of school districts. Well, maybe to expand them. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, if you're not currently operating, I think you know the the, ben the benefits of uh, establishing a gifted and talented program. I guess maybe one other thing I would say for uh, for policymakers is that. It is true that in practice, these programs disproportionately enroll white and Asian students, but that is not a law of nature, right? Um, and so thinking carefully about the screening process and whether you want it to just be test score based or whether you want to take a more holistic approach and thinking carefully about the students who would benefit from this and whether minority students um, might really perhaps disproportionately benefit from being in these programs would be an important part of the calculus if you wanted to operate or expand gifted and talented programs while doing so in a racially equitable or the, way. And the other, the other way to put it is, if you wanted to achieve that goal, why not do it by expanding these programs rather than trying to uh, decrease opportunities for the kids that are already in them? So it seems to me like, you know, opening the door. The attorney in, in Philadelphia made that point. He says it'd be much better to, you know, provide more opportunities for more kids than to restrict opportunities for some kids. Yeah, I, I think that's a reasonable, a reasonable framework. What's going to happen downstream? Is that the, is that our politics uh, going forward, or or do you think these programs are on the ropes? Uh, you know, I don't have a great read of the kind of local politics. I think it'll vary district by district. Certainly, New York City had a very high profile case uh, where they kind of announced to substantial fanfare that they were going to eliminate these programs, um, and then pretty quickly rolled it back. There was a change in administration as well, but um, but pretty quickly rolled that back. So I do think that, um, you know, attempts to to just wholesale, get rid of gifted and talented programs is probably not a particularly easy sell politically. And I'd be surprised if they disappeared anytime soon. Well, thank you, Owen, for that very interesting study and for that very interesting uh, conversation about the place of the programs that we have for our gifted and talented students. Yeah, it was a pleasure to be here, Paul. Thanks for the discussion. I have been speaking with Professor Owen Thompson. He's a professor of economics at Williams College in Williamstown, Massachusetts, and he's the author of a just released article in Education Next entitled, Gifted and Talented Programs Don't Cause School Segregation. This is the Education Exchange. I am Paul Peterson. Please join me every Monday when another podcast is released on the Education Next website at noon Eastern time.